Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in today's episode 101, we're going to be talking about things that we want to see banned forever and ever. Yes, disappear them down the memory hole. But before we get into all that stuff, there seem to be quite a lot of things going on at the moment. It's like buses, they've all come along at the same time. Hmm. Well, the big one, obviously, is issue two of the Blasphemous Tome has now gone out to backers. Yeah, I visited the post office on Monday morning with two large boxes of envelopes, and they were sent around the world to uh, many different countries. So hopefully you are receiving your Blasphemous Tome uh, any day now. We've seen some photos of people having uh, been uh, besieged by them. Yeah, we'd welcome Mm. your photographs online of uh, wherever you are. And uh, whoever you are, get in your tome. Paul was saying earlier he was hoping that people would send him some sexy photos with them holding the tome. Was it the tome you were saying? I can't remember if you said it was the tome or something else, Paul. I can't remember. And I suppose this is a good time to mention that this is going to spoil perhaps some of the recording magic that goes into the good friends of Jackson Elias. But we don't record entire episodes all at the same time. Hey, you're giving away trade secrets, damn it, shut up. Well, we do, because because we've got Mike here for this bit, but not for the rest of the episode. Ah. (laughs) I am here, they just don't know it. I'm just, I'm watching them always. You're always here, you're always here, Mike. (laughs) So somewhat frustratingly, just before the release of episode 100, we had some trouble with our website server. So if you had trouble downloading the episode or accessing the website... Apologies, but it's all up and running again now, thanks to Scott's hard work on the telephone to the servers. I wasn't speaking to the servers Well, directly. you know what I mean. <laughs> you speak facts or something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah yes, I, I, I whistle down the line to them. Resisting the, uh, resisting the urge to turn the air very blue around. Don't, don't mention blue. Just, <laughs> yeah, just don't. No, yes, our, our hosting provider was, and well, still is for the moment, but not for long, Bluehost. And if you are in need of a WordPress hosting provider, I heartily recommend anyone else. And as we have Mike here, line editor of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, what's all this about a spell compendium, Mike? We've just relaunched the um, PDF of the Grand Grimoire of Cthulhu Mythos Magic, which is the compendium of Call of Cthulhu spells, um, drawn from across, you know, um, 35 plus years of the game. So uh, spells drawn from old supplements, um, scenarios, campaigns, as well as as well as uh, newer spells and some brand new spells created for the tome, but effectively collects them all together. Um, so there's over 550 spells in the book. Matt helped uh, to put the book together, did a lot of uh, research and uh, pulling the spells out from... You know, digging through old musty tomes and yeah, finding spells. Yeah. Well, in fact, you know, for those listeners who remember our two Rillier Roulette episodes, the spreadsheet that Matt put together for this project was our source for those episodes. Hey, the truth is out! <laughs> and, yeah. well, of course, the most important thing about this project, though, is you have once again restored into print in the 7th edition version, Attract Fish. Yeah, we don't really talk about that, but yes, uh, Attract Fish is, is in the book, 
And uh, as I say, the PDF is now live on the Kersian website and uh, the print version of the book is uh, on its way to the printers and should be out uh, by the uh, you know, by the summer convention season. A big full colour book with lots of stuff on spells as well as the actual spells themselves. So uh, mm. a, a, an essential resource, one might say. So, I understand, Matt, Mr. Kickstarter Information Man, there are a couple of Kickstarters out relating to things Cthulhu. Yeah, it seems to be, as mentioning earlier about things like buses all coming on at the same time, there's been a few that have um, hit Kickstarter in the last, say, couple of weeks. Uh, the first, the big one, the one, um, the one of the three that I can think of that I've backed, is the Q Workshop Metal Dice 4 Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, they're intricate, to say the least. You've done a video, video about that, right, yeah. Mike? I have indeed. They, yes. I, uh, I was sent a set to uh, have a look at them and, and do a, a short uh, a short video on the actual um, Q Workshop Kickstarter page for the dice. Um, so uh, I would advise you, obviously, if you want to uh, see me talking about the dice and my opinion on them, then you should check out the Kickstarter page. I, I shall try to remember to link to them from the show notes. They are hefty dice and uh, they're very, very nice. Excellent. And they're doing stretch goals as well, which are different sets of dice. Is that right? Again, at the time of recording, they've hit the main metal set, and then the next set seems to be what they're calling a Neathletep set, um, regular plastic but with a black and red colour scheme, with the um, with the swirling bloody tongue image that you'll find in the Seventh Ed rulebook. And speaking of Kickstarters for lumps of metal, we were sent a set of uh, badges by uh, AAA's Games. Uh, they, they've done a set of badges which are the covers of Mythos Tomes. These are sort of lapel badges uh, with pins on them. They, they sent us the Necronomicon cover, uh, which has got the, the, the sort of sigil in it that's a bit reminiscent of the, the sigil from uh, the cover of the Simon Necronomicon, with a couple of elder signs on it and the word Necronomicon in Gothic script. Uh, they've got a few others in the set, though. Do you just want to mention what those are, Paul? Yeah, we have Unus... And I'll s- oh, I Yeah, we have Anes Brecklicken Colton. I knew I could pronounce that easily. We have. Oh, I'm happy with that. We have the King in Yellow. We have the Cult de Ghoul and the generic Cthulhu Cultist badge, just to show that you're a member of the cult. You've got until Wednesday, the 29th of March, 2017. Another bit of news on a kind of sad note here. Um, one publication that we've mentioned before, Proto Dimension, is no more. Yeah, they, this is um, a free electronic fanzine that's been around for a few years that has done some fantastic scenarios for a variety of horror games, including Call of Cthulhu. And unfortunately, yeah, they're, they're wrapping it up. But the good news is that Lee Williams, the co-editor of it, is sort of relaunching it, though it's, it's actually a different publication with a different name. So it's now going to be called The Dark Times. Uh, there is a new page for it up on Facebook, so if you were a Proto Dimension fan before, take a look there and, and you know, like the new page. We've reached your favourite part of the show, Scott. Yes, I, I like the part of the show. It's just I will never, ever, ever like the name of it. But I suffer for my art. Hey. So that means, yes, it is once again time for the Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week our word is abomination. A noun. One. 
Something greatly disliked or abhorred. Two. Intense aversion or loathing. Detestation. I love that word. <laughs> Three. A vile or shameful action, condition or habit. And this is something of a running theme, I guess. The number of words Lovecraft used that express this idea of loathing and disgust. He would have had no trouble with today's theme of the show, thinking of three things that he wanted to get rid of, uh, you know, get rid of. Which yeah. three things he'd be having trouble trying yeah, to narrow it down Yeah, he would have to. trouble narrowing it down, I think. Yeah, and I think we'd probably end up having to cut out a good half or three quarters of what he had to say. Yeah. <laughs> This is, I think, a, one of the more versatile words that he used in terms of uh, that, that expression of loathing, in that it covers you know, not only the thing that is abhorred, but the act of abhorring it as well. I mean, that said, I think he, he used it primarily in the former aspect. And he did use it uh, not as much as some of the other words we've been talking about recently, but a good 15 times in his texts. So, oh, at least in his fiction. And let's have a look at how Lovecraft used abomination in his works. From The Outsider I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees, and recognised the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognised, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. And from the lurking fear, I cannot fathom it, for the shadow on that chimney was not that of George Bennett or of any other human creature, but a blasphemous abnormality from hell's nethermost craters, a nameless, shapeless abomination which no mind could fully grasp and no pen even partly describe. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath, the Gugs. Hairy and gigantic, once reared stone circles in that wood and made strange sacrifices to the other gods and the crawling chaos in the Arthalotep. Until one night, an abomination of theirs reached the ears of Earth's gods and they were banished to caverns below. And now on to this week's main topic, the memory hole. Those things we'd like to see banished out of existence. The inspiration for this episode came about when Paul noticed, hang on, we're about to do episode 101. Could we do something themed? How about if we were to rip off the format of the popular BBC TV series Room 101? <laughs> now maybe that I don't know if this show goes over in America or not. A show takes about half an hour and they get well known people to nominate things that they don't like that really bug them that they dislike and put them into room 101 which is a a slight variation on um you know Orwell's design for 101 but uh yeah well it's it's something that's actually bugged me in the 23 years or whatever this show's been on the air really that, that long? long yeah yeah it started in 1994 jesus christ <laughs> wait a minute 1994 is that long ago yes yes paul it is that's all wrong. <laughs> yeah, Frank Skinner doesn't look as low as age today. <laughs> I think somebody else does it now. No, well, no, he took over from Paul Merton. Oh, that's it, yeah, yeah. Um, but the idea, then, that you can sign these things you don't like to Room 101. So Room 101 in George Orwell's 1984 is this room where you are faced 
with that thing you hate and fear most in the world, your, your phobia. In the case of the protagonist of, of 1984, Winston Smith, that thing is rats. Uh, he is put in room 101, a cage is placed over his head, and a hungry rat deposited within it, and at that point he breaks. If only they'd had the human faces. The rats, that is. <laughs> yes. The rat, the rat with the human face. <laughs> I was just more thinking it would be really difficult to do mine. How can you make a manifestation of mourning all the time? <laughs> um, bright lights and sleep deprivation. An alarm that's clock. My, that's my life. An, An alarm <laughs> clock eternally ringing. <laughs> and no caffeine. Uh, no snooze button. Oh, Yeah, maybe it's possible then. Okay. <laughs> Picture the future. An alarm clock ringing forever with no snooze button. The smell of burnt toast. <laughs> well, that's normal for me. Exactly, in the morning. <laughs> yeah. It's any time I do toast. But then the TV series Room 101 has this idea that you know, these things you don't like get consigned down there. And there's never the expectation that you're going to have to go down and deal with them afterwards. So this, the thing that bugs me is this actually applies much more to something else from 1984, which we alluded to in the title here, which is the idea of the memory hole. And the memory hole is where the... Um, where the party in 1984 basically deposits everything that is inconvenient, all the parts of its history it wants to forget. So these can be uh, news articles, documents, whatever. If, if it's something that they want to forget, then there are shoots around to which items are consigned and they just go down to an incinerator. And this is called the memory hole. And that is exactly what the fucking TV series Room 101 is. It's not Room 101, it's the memory hole. Scott's shaking his arms in frustration at the TV show that's been doing it wrong for the last 23 years. (laughs) So you're putting Room 101 down the memory hole then? (laughs) Yes, yes I am. (laughs) (laughs) We did have a little uh, litmus test earlier to see whether people would get the reference to memory hole. I'm, I'm happy to report, uh, dear listener, that it was two to three against. <laughs> so <laughs> if you can prove us wrong, then by all means leave a comment in the show notes. Yes. If, <laughs> if you are literate and would like to demonstrate it to my two colleagues, please, please shame them publicly. <laughs> As our intro always says, we are a podcast about Cthulhu, horror films, and um, horror gaming in general. So we're going to stick to that tri- uh, trio of topics and think of examples of things that we wish to banish from those three realms of existence we normally try to be fairly positive on this podcast and talk about things we like speak for yourself monkey boy (laughs) (laughs) i say normally and try and also i get to edit that those bits out matt yeah (laughs) oh yes yeah if you ever if you ever listen to the unedited version of this show you'd you'd realize just how much stuff gets cut out that is basically one or more of us are ranting into a microphone. Well, this is a chance for us to spend an entire episode ranting into a microphone. Hey. The time has come. <laughs> Matt, out of the three of us, you seem to be the one who has the least trouble finding stuff that you don't like. Me? No, no. <laughs> I resemble so, that remark. So why, why don't you kick us off? You know what I really hate in gaming? Absolutely everything <laughs> and everyone you play with. <laughs> That's not quite true. <laughs> Come on then, Matt. What's your number three? My number three, I'll start off with an anecdote which I might have used beforehand. There was a game that I used to play in Essex. A really good game. Uh, It was a live-action Vampire the Requiem game. And we had a really good creative bunch of people uh, that were there. They went a lot into set dressing, atmosphere, and so on. And then we had one other visiting player. 
again, nice enough guy outside of game context. But there was one moment where a player basically stood up and revealed they had done something. Basically stood up and revealed that they'd done something as a player-driven plot without the the storyteller having to intervene or anything. And I thought, yeah, this is a really nice moment to suddenly realise that this, this person's done something. And the thing which I'd like to put into uh, put down the memory hole, the fucking rules lawyer in the corner just said, no, the power don't work like that. You can't do that. And completely <laughs> destroyed the whole atmosphere. Uh, nearly had said player leave uh, leave the game session as a result. And it just completely destroyed the evening because he just stood, uh, just sat in the corner and went, no, it doesn't work like that. I don't think I've ever played in a game that's been improved by people sitting down for 10, 15 minutes or, or longer in some cases, arguing about some aspect of the rules. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've encountered this sometimes in actual play recordings I've listened to in, in other games I've seen. It bogs the game down. It, it detaches, certainly me, from the whole thing. All right, it may appeal to some arbitrary aspect of fairness, but in what way does it actually make the gaming experience more fun? Certain again, similar kind of uh, situation completely destroyed any like of mine for the fate system. Once we spent half an hour doing a single bloody round of combat when we playtested the Dresden Files RPG. Yes. It's why I'll never touch that game again because of that experience I had. Yeah, well, I think that was less rules arguments and more because it was a playtest, us sitting down with what was in that initial draft of it, a fairly complex system for magic and just mm-hmm. thinking, how the hell does this work? Yeah, but again, going into that again discussion of rules yes. at the table just completely destroyed any interest for me in that system and game at all. Rules lawyers, I'd go for that. I concur. Yay! Oh. Universal agreement on the first one. We're, we're great. Yeah. Hang, <laughs> hang on, when we're going to try to at least play devil's advocate and disagree with each other, Paul, you have no, no I'm trouble. Not, be- I'm not you have no trouble being contrary. Can, can, can you come up with some kind of arbitrary defence of rules, lawyers? I sort of gave a token stab at it, sort of saying I can see how it might make the game seem, seem more fair. And they're wrong. Yeah, I know. I know they're wrong. <laughs> no, I think it's just sucking the fun out. So, uh, I mean, I think you should. I think I, I guess it's good if you can play. If there, if it's a good set of rules, if you can play by the rules in the book, then that's good. But if you got someone just being a, an ass and just uh, holding up proceedings and just basically spoiling the fun, then yeah, no. But, but I mean, beyond rules, lawyers. I mean, wh- where do you stand on the idea of? effectively stopping play coming outside the narrative that's going on and sitting down there and having some discussion about, oh, yeah, actually, you know, would you get such and such a bonus on this? I mean, you know, surely this is a counteracting factor. And, oh, hang on, let me just check the rule book. And, if you, you enjoy know, doing that, then I guess you're not spoiling the fun. But if everybody else is kind of, you know, yeah, looking but, around but, the room and... But you personally? Me personally? Yeah. No, because um, I'd... I'd I would kind of, if it was something really crucial, life or death for a character, then I might sort of stop and say, okay, let's just, you know, if somebody was querying it, let's just, just see if we can find the reference to that rule. Um, but often I'd kind of um, try to speed things along. Yeah. Well, Dan. Yeah, we agree then. Yay! Okay, Paul, it's, it's down to you then to find something contentious. Make us disagree. So I was trying to think of things about gaming that were quite specific. And Matt's rules lawyer, I like that. Um, and I was thinking about all the things in, in gaming that, that we have and some of the paraphernalia we have. And really, what is the deal with metal dice? Who needs them? They're big, they're heavy, clunky things. And like you've got a nice table and, you, and they just whack down into the table and they, like, I could, my life, 
could be fine without well, them. I mean, it could be even worse because when I first started gaming seriously, it was when I was out in New York and it was at my parents' place there. And they had this this dining table that we used to game around because it was the, the glass table in the one, house. right? And it had a glass top. Yeah. On it. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, heavy dice on that. I mean, I don't think anyone had metal dice at the time, but they weren't we really a thing back then, I think. Yeah. yeah. I, I, but, but, I mean, even rolling, say, something like a big clunky D20 across that felt a bit alarming. I, you know, if, if I was throwing a bunch of heavy metal dice across there and worrying about, yeah, maybe not cracking it, but chipping it, yeah, I wouldn't be happy. Right, now I do get to play Devil's Advocate, because <laughs> I like metal dice. <laughs> One of the first sets of dice I actually got was the big, um, the big metal uh, kind of bronzed or copper, that was it, D20. You have a lot of dice, Matt. Those are some of the first ones you bought. yeah. So, and, so is the idea of these that you can put them in a sock and then just go out and whack people over the head with them? Oh, just the GM if I disagree with him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or other players. But no, I just like the idea of rolling with a bang, quite literally. That's why I have the dice trays. Uh, there's a great one that uh, All Rolled Up do, which is got kind of a neoprene base, so it cushions it a little bit more. But yeah, it's just the weight of them in your hand and oh. getting to throw them or throw them at another player. Yeah, it's all good. I, I'd love to hear what the guy from Game Science has to say about rolling dice in a neoprene tray. <laughs> oh, because gosh. I imagine that, you know, you, you wouldn't see that in a casino, would you? Because it would no. interfere with the rolling. No. Yeah, it all bounce. And, and so, yeah... yeah you, uh, I know. I'm, I'm sorry. That's that. That just makes it worse. Lou Zotti is the guy. That's it. Um, yes. Yeah, who uh, who will give great lectures at Gen Con on his tiny little stall about uh, various polyhedral dice um, being cast perfectly. Um, I, I, I don't see him doing metal dice though. As I'm sure Paul will remind me to do, we should put a link in the show notes. To, yeah. To to one of his great rants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's he's a yeah. lovely chap. Yes. Thinking of links, you might want to put a link up there on the uh, on the Kickstarter front because the Kickstarter for Cthulhu Metal Dice goes live on the 16th of March. Well, what so, better advert could there be for that product than what I've just said? Oh, well, yeah. Well, I was just thinking <laughs> that is the most perfectly Sanderson refutation you could have of your point. That not only are you wrong, but here's a Kickstarter to throw back at you. <laughs> Which I'm wondering by this point how many stretch goals it will have made. Yeah. So, so, yeah, what kind of stretch goals do they have in mind? They're going to use denser and denser metals. By the time they hit the top tier, you're going to get osmium dice that will just you know, crack anything they're thrown at. <laughs> well, the, there, are the, there is the company Artisan Dice, which I keep thinking, oh, one day I will buy some stuff from them because they are gorgeous dice. Particularly they have an amber D20, a D20 made of solid amber. Huh. I keep hoping that one day they'll have one with a fly in the middle of it, that that'll be the one I get. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking along your lines there, Paul. I mean, one addition that I place on that is some of the really fancy dice that certain companies uh, produce that are, I mean, gorgeous, beautifully stylized, use incredibly intricate fonts and are absolutely fucking unreadable. But yes, yeah, it's just that idea that you're, you're sitting around your gaming table, you, you, you reach a, a tense moment in the game, someone makes that critical roll and suddenly you're spending 30 seconds with everyone sitting there going... Is that a one it, or a zero? Yeah, yeah. What's that? <laughs> what does that say? Yeah. Is that yes, six or I, a nine? I oh. hate that. <laughs> so round to you, Scott, what's your number three? Well, I guess as we're on a bit of a roll for gaming here, no oh, dice pun, pun intended. intended. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I'll choose a gaming one then. 
which is badly explained RPG tastes. Now, whether they're rules or scenarios, I have fairly strong opinions on this. I can think of a few games, I'm not actually going to specifically mention them, but a few indie games that I've bought over the last 10 years, where I have had to sit down and perform what feels like an academic study of the game to work out how the hell to play it. It's all part of the experience. Yeah, but, I mean, if if I sit down and have to then pick out a bunch of related rules that are explained 20 pages apart, you know, in the text, and then create my own cheat sheet so I can see the way they all interact, and then, you know, have to run through a few trial things on my own just to make sure I understand the game mechanics... Um, and then possibly post questions on the designers forum or on social media just to make sure I understand it. Yeah, if you're having to yeah. do research to find out how it works rather than just read the book, which is the instruction manual, yes. then that's not so great, is it? But and then you get the Matt's, Matt's uh, um, one come up. Rules lawyers who disagree with your interpretation. <laughs> yeah, that just makes it worse. And I suppose the frustrating thing is in most cases that I've encountered this, they're with relatively simple games. They're just really badly explained. It's not like you're trying to digest, you know, 60 pages of really complex rules. In most cases, by the time I've written one of these cheat sheets, it comes down to a page, maybe two. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you're writing a game or designing one, then, you know, please, please, please try to explain things in a logical order build you know define a concept and then build upon it don't use terms out of sequence if there are two related sets of mechanics don't put them in different parts of the book uh and yeah fundamentally as paul was saying a moment ago you are writing an instruction manual i i know that you know Games generally have to be a bit more interesting to read, and you don't want it to be too dry and boring. But on the other hand, the primary job of any game text you write is that it has got to convey how to play that game to someone. And if you're so caught up in trying to make it cool or interesting to read that you lose sight of that goal, then you have failed as a game writer. Now, if you want us to play Devil's Advocate, Scott... Your nomination is basically badly written text. It's kind of hard to take the other side of that. No, I think think books should be badly written, Scott. I I want to defend the right of people to write books badly. No, but but I have heard a counter-argument, not from the the defence of them being badly written, but from what I just said about the uh, the primary purpose being as an instruction manual and not being necessarily being fun to read. But the counter-argument I've heard is that... um, There are people out there who buy games primarily to read them and never play them. And this probably applies more to scenarios than core systems, but maybe games with lots of fluff. And that by making those games as entertaining as possible to read, you're catering to that audience. If you wrote stuff in a very direct instruction manual side of things, uh, sorry, style of things, then it wouldn't necessarily be as much fun for them to read. Well, I think the aim is to do both, really. If it's going to be instructional, if it's engaging and to some degree entertaining, or at least certainly engaging, then that that I think that would be the aim. Yeah, I, I fall more on the side of it being that if it's a rule, then it should be written in a clear, concise, there is only one way you can interpret it manner. Hmm. Anything fluff, anything that would be description of setting, by all means, go into your into whatever flowery pro- prose you want at that point. But the minute you start talking about 
rules, you have to be concise and you have and you, to be... And there's room for colour in the examples as well. Yes. Yeah. Examples, I think, are a good place for that. I think if you're putting little bits of flash fiction or something in the text mm. to give yourself flavour, then that's a good place for it. And round to Matt for his second choice. This time I'm going to delve into the realm of films, in particular horror films, because we have a lot to say about horror films. I like a film that builds atmosphere, and I've got two friends smiling right back at me, knowing exactly what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> I like say films that build atmosphere. They take the time to craft something that is genuinely unnerving. Somewhere where they've evidently put a lot of effort into what's uh, what's going on on the screen, the story that's be- uh, behind everything, the music, etc. All building this uh, layers upon layers of atmosphere and dread. The thing that I find lazy, dull, are jump scares. The most lowest form of scare and atmosphere that you can possibly throw into a horror film. They are just downright fucking lazy and terrible, repetitive, exactly the same thing every time. Ditch it! I'm done. There we are. (laughs) So you don't like them, Matt? No! <laughs> Fucking well, hate jump scares. I, I would say the first jump scare I recall is going as a kid to see Jaws at the oh, cinema yes. over the road. And, uh, you know, when he's, um, when he's down underwater and the, yeah, uh, yeah, the, the, boat. the body comes yeah. out of the broken yeah. hole inside yeah. of the boat. Oh, I mean, I jumped out of my skin. <laughs> yeah, like a, a decayed yes. corpse kind of comes out. Um, yeah, I remember jumping out of my skin then and then sort of having like memories of that. I kind of like them. Yeah, uh. I, I I will defend certain jump scares. I mean, that one that you describe in Jaws, I think, is a really good example. Mm. What th- there's a particular type of jump scare that's become steadily more popular over the last ten, fifteen years, which is the completely gratuitous one, where at some point the director or, or screenwriter has decided that you need a little scare, a beat of some description in that scene or at this point in the film. So you will have someone who is, say, wandering around a house where something creepy has been happening or they've heard a strange noise. And, you know, it's maybe a bit dark and we're seeing the camera moving behind them and they're looking around doorways and into dark rooms and and all of a sudden something grabs their arm and they jump and there's this huge sting of strings or whatever musical instrument's going on. And they look round and it's their friend saying, oh, what are you up to? Mm. I mean, for a start, if you're in that kind of situation, hey, wouldn't you just kind of talk to the person rather than going up and grabbing them, particularly if they've got a gun or a knife in their hand. No, you'd have a you'd have like some music lined up and you just press the play button and then grab them, Scott. <laughs> yes. I find it has the opposite effect. Uh, of of scaring people that you get that immediate kind of jump uh, there's almost inevitably the release of laughter afterwards and it diminishes the tension in the scene and a good jump scare can do that as well like the one you mentioned in jaws it builds up the tension and suddenly you know you've got that escalation and it deflates it but this because it's not really earned and it's pointless actually i think ends up harming the structure of the film well i think a thing that the film critic Mark Kermode talks about is cattle prod cinema yes. in that we're just, you know, the fact that you go to see a film and it makes you jump isn't really surprising because if you're in a quiet environment and then there's a sudden noise, it kind of naturally does make one jump. Um, but so that that seems like a, a kind of a, a low bar jump scare, whereas, yeah. you know, good ones like the one in Jaws that we mentioned, I think. But, I mean, have you ever seen a jump scare in a film that, that has word for you, that, that doesn't seem gratuitous or you know, has, has improved things at all for you? 
The only one I can think of, and even then, it's only what I would say is tangentially a jump scare because there is no musical bang that goes with it. Doesn't have to have no, music. It doesn't. No. Um, the one that worked for me a lot and does have that really. I was roaring with laughter after I saw it the other time. It was in Burn <laughs> After Reading. Um, when Brad Pitt's running around this house trying to look for evidence of some some kind or whatever. Um, and here's the owner come back, or what he thinks is the owner come back in the house, so he dives in the closet. And of course, said owner goes straight to the closet, sees Brad Pitt kind of going, oh, hello there, in the closet, and bang, straight in the face. <laughs> His brains are splattered all over the back of the back of the, now, uh, the was wardrobe. was that a surprise or a jump scare? <laughs> well, it was a very loud bang. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. was it a scare? Or was it just like something that's really unexpected? It was I mean, re- I guess, is there a difference there? It, it was really unexpected. It was loud. It made me jump. It didn't okay, scare yeah. me. Okay, yeah. All right. That, that is the closest I can think of one that I actually liked. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And it was fun to see Brad Pitt's brains all over the back of a wardrobe, so. <laughs> well, whatever gets you through the night, Matt. <laughs> all right, then, Paul, what about you? I've got a friend who I go to the cinema with quite often, You know, he likes certain types of films, and we go along, and the film I'm thinking of have a particular kind of beginning. They have a kind of a a flicking, like, of pages, and then the Marvel logo comes up, and my heart kind of drops, because, you know, I sat through Iron Man, and I seem to be, like, alone in this, but did he really... I mean, he took freaking ages to build that suit. It gets broken, and then we... It was like... Porn for mechanics. I, I, I remember, I remember you, you seeing that and, and talking to me a day or two afterwards and saying, you know what would have made that film better? If he built the suit a third fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I looked up the list of Marvel films and, yeah, there are one or two that I've enjoyed. I enjoyed um, The Avengers. I mean, Joss Whedon had a big input on the script there, so I think that was the, the saving well, grace well, of that one. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the rest of them, you know, and, you know, I'd add in Sin City, even though it's not Marvel. Um, mostly it's just films that are fucking adapted from comic books. I would kind of chuck comic books in as well, probably, with this. So it's films, particularly when people tell me how wonderful it is that they've stayed so true to the comic book. Those I would burn first. <laughs> so Sin City, The Watchmen... Um, the, the Watchmen didn't stick true to the. There was no well, squid. That was definitely not true. <laughs> that was one of the few that I had read. That, that's what I'd put in, and I don't think the world would be a poorer place without them. Ooh, that's fighting talk. <laughs> <laughs> see, okay, well, if you guys can't defend it, that's fine. We can just go on, we can just go on to the next thing. You see, personally, I, I hadn't read Sin City by the, when I went to go see the film. I went to just see it on its own merit. I thought it was a wonderful film. I, I enjoyed every minute of that. And then when I went out and brought, because I liked it so much, I brought every Sin City graphic novel that there was, read it through and went, my God, it's so... It's like watching just frame by frame of the film again. With, I think, one or two exceptions in one of the... I think it's the, the Yellow Bastard one where they've changed a couple of bits around. But otherwise, it's almost perfect. And thought that was... A wonderful piece of adaptation, getting mm. it so accurate from one to the other. Yeah. I know the argument you've used. The argument you've used is that it felt quite soulless before, hasn't it? Because a lot of it was done on green screen. But I didn't pick, it up, pick up on that at well, all. Well, it wasn't just the fact that it was done on green screen. It's the fact they made what I think was the bizarre decision to have 
uh, to shoot scenes with different actors in isolation. So you get a scene where you get two actors who were supposedly playing off each other, and each one of them was filmed individually on green screen, and they weren't necessarily in the same room at the same time or acting against each other. I think that made a lot of the acting and the dialogue in it feel incredibly flat. I see. I, I didn't pick up on that at all. But um, it was one thing I didn't like Watchmen for, though. I was I was raring for the moment the squid would show up, <laughs> and the fact there's a massive fucking plot hole in it because you take out the squid and suddenly the comedian turning up at Moloch's place makes no sense whatsoever. But no, there's there's instances where I'd say adaptations from comic book works. I'm not a massive mm. fan of Marvel, but. Certain films like Sin City and Watchmen, to to a point, I could defend them. I, I again, I I didn't like Watchmen at all. I Watchmen, I think, is an example of why stuff that works in one medium doesn't necessarily work in another, because Zack Snyder did slavishly try to recreate particular scenes and imagery and so on from the comics. But you know what works very well on a page or splash pages or where you've got panels mirroring each other doesn't necessarily work on the screen the storytelling was a very particular type of written storytelling that again didn't necessarily translate and as a result i felt the film was again really quite flat and uninvolving but yeah i think if you're adapting something from one medium to another you should make the changes to make it work in the medium in which it's being uh transmitted in which it's being portrayed on to you for your number three then scott Okay, seeing as we seem to be in film the midst of films, yes, then I will talk about the one thing, and this applies mainly to films, mainly to horror films, but uh, to, to life in general. The thing I hate most in horror films is happy endings. You just I, hate happiness I do. in general. I do, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it is a deeply unnatural state of being, yeah. and its very presence on this earth brings me even more pain than I would normally feel. Uh-huh. What but, emotion are you feeling when you smile, Scott? I, I, nothing. I, I, I'm just. just a, there is a dead an void inside it, of me. It's just a muscle spasm. That's yeah, all it is. Yeah. Richter's grin. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, with happy endings, I'll, I'll, I'll be a bit more specific here. That there is in a lot of horror films, I think, this drive to try to wrap things up neatly, to try to leave the audience with a smile at the end. I mean, it's something I see much less in horror films than I did, particularly in the 80s and 90s. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. I was so, just thinking, because I can't think yeah. of many at all. So there are two that particularly stand out to me, and they are, they are especially egregious because in both cases they're remakes of films that didn't have happy endings. Ah. So the two examples I choose, the first one, the big one, is a Dutch film from, I think it was the late 80s, the name of which I am not going to attempt to pronounce in Dutch, but it was released in English as The Vanishing. The Vanishing is... It's a thriller, it's, it's about... Um, a man searching for his missing girlfriend. And it has one of the most devastating endings I have ever seen. And this is what made it such a, a memorable film. It became a crossover success. It, you know, it was big at the cinema at the time, bigger on video afterwards. And it became a celebrated horror film as a result of the sheer darkness and the willingness to commit to the full horror of its ending. So, of course, a few years later, because it's such a big success, there is a Hollywood remake starring Kiefer Sutherland. I can't remember who directed it, but 
it follows much the same storyline, but it gets to the ending. And obviously at some point, either they'd had a test audience that had reacted badly to what they'd shot, or some producer had, had said, oh, yeah, but, but people aren't going to like this. That's such a downer of an ending. And, you know, gave it a nice, happy resolution where everyone lives happily ever after and all the loose ends are tied up and... and completely destroyed the entire fucking point of the film almost like they're just interested in selling popcorn scott pretty much and i i can understand the commercial argument i can understand that that is the actual purpose of films but as an experience of watching it i i i I came away from that absolutely disgusted and the other example that comes to mind is uh the the remake in the 1990s of the haunting Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the original 1963 Robert Wise film, The Haunting, based on Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House, has got this very, very dark ending. I mean, it's not completely nihilistic, but there's one of the characters you know has sort of ended up with a fate, well, maybe not worse than death, but certainly linked with it. It is, again, an absolutely gut-churning ending. You know, it, really dark, really moving and affecting and it comes around to the, the, the 1990s remake. And for a start, this, this film that was originally shot in atmospheric black and white with no special effects and just nothing but sort of sound effects and shadows to build atmosphere. And great dialogue. And great dialogue. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a marvellous film. It's one of my favourite horror films and, and actually really quite scary. Mm. They turned it into a special effects extravaganza. And at some point they decided what it needed was a whole bunch of cute kids whose spirits were trapped in the house and so on. And the heroine sort of goes to try to almost sacrifice herself to save these kids and release them. But somehow she's spared her horrible fate as well. And everyone lives happily ever after. And, you know, the only thing that's missing at the end is a musical number with all the ghosts singing together. I watched that on video and I... I, I really wanted to punch my television afterwards. <laughs> so this is an attempt by uh, filmmakers to make something more accessible, more a broader audience I of, of a film so. that you previously enjoyed and they've changed it in a way that you don't like. Yeah. Because ironically, it doesn't make you happy. This happy ending doesn't make you happy. It makes Scott. me very unhappy. Yeah. So actually the angry endings to you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. This is going back a long way for us. Um, but... Uh, if you go back through the archives, dear listener, you'll find we did an episode on David Cronenberg. And in particular, one of his films that we looked at, Shivers. Oh, Cronenberg said the ending of that was a, was a happy ending. Yeah, true. That That is my kind of happy ending. <laughs> yeah, when David Cronenberg says it's happy ending, I mean, you know, he seems a fairly, uh, artistically at least, yes. <laughs> a fairly strange guy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's in harmony. Yeah, you don't get a much happier ending than, than humanity being gradually transformed by a sentient venereal disease. Well, we're round to you, Matt, for your top choice. Off my top one, I'm moving into the area of books, whether this be novels or short stories and so on. There's a informal term that we've used to describe my rating of a book or a story, which is, what sleep count did it have? Mm. <laughs> now, does that, is that a measure of quality or of just uh, you, know, you, you, you dozing off? Well, if it's something that grips me, generally I'll stay with it, and it doesn't let me fall asleep. Right, so gripping and brief would be the ultimate. Brief is the big thing here. Because I remember, this This is one thing I've found, it mainly permeates a lot of fantasy these days, but mm. it seems to be getting into a wider spectrum. 
that I think it was actually Bill Bryson, of all, of all people, I can't stand his work, but this one quote came up that I really did like, where he says, one of the ultimate pieces of survival kit that you can take with you if you're ever stranded in somewhere like the, uh, like the Australian Outback is a Tom Clancy book. Because <laughs> you can walk around with it, you can build houses with it, um, you can uh, you can use it to batter small animals to death with, and you can still rip half a dozen pages out of it and burn it to make and to use it to start making a fire, and it'll be there for, it'll be there for fucking weeks. <laughs> it's books that you can build houses with that resemble breeze blocks that you don't need a forklift truck to lift. I don't want to read anything more than two hundred pages long. Generally, I'd be happy even if it was a hundred. I like brevity. I do not like obs- obscenely huge, unnecessarily. Big, chunky fucking tomes. Yeah, you know, I nearly went for this, overly fat books. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I remember reading Weave World, um, the Clive Barker book, and getting about, really, really enjoying it, and then it gets about halfway through, and it goes to that thing in the desert, and that's like, this is like a different book. Why didn't he just stop there, put a full stop? And then sometime later, I saw him interviewed in The Guardian, and his... Uh, it's like, what was what would your dream moment be? And he was like, oh, putting the full stop to another thousand-page book. As if, <laughs> you know, that was... You couldn't write less than that and you just have to keep stringing it out until you got to a thousand pages. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is something that tends to make me feel quite old, just like everything else in life. I remember, I, as, as a young reader... I, well, not even young reader, but when I was first starting to read horror novels and science fiction books and so on. Like the Iliad and the Odyssey, Scott, when they were quite short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Back, back when they were freshly imprinted. Yeah. But, but no, no, I, back in the 1970s, um, th- a lot of genre books at that time were really quite short. Most novels tended to be somewhere between 100 and 200 pages. Mm. It was rare to see a book thicker than that. And what seemed to happen was sometime in the 1980s, books just started growing in size. And like you say, it really started with fantasy, but it moved on to science fiction and, to some extent, horror uh, around the same time. I mean, Stephen King had written a few fairly chunky books in it's the 70s. It's The Stand. But, well, no, I mean, yeah. th- those were in the 80s. But, I mean, even in the 70s, and things like Salem's Lot and um, The Shining, I mean, they were about 300 pages, which mm. I remember thinking at the time was a long book. Mm. And now you're hard-pressed to find books much shorter than that, I grew up reading uh, Michael Moorcock and Robert E. Howard and Fritz Lieber, all these great sword and sorcery stories, which were short, punchy little things that moved along at a brisk pace, didn't have excessive description of them, told tightly focused stories, and then just moved on to the next bit. And sometime in the 80s, it was like the, the seeds that Tolkien had planted in the, the 1940s or 50s had, um, had finally germinated. And suddenly, every bastard wanted to write a fucking trilogy. But some of those, I mean, I would say um, Thomas Covenant um, by Stephen Donaldson was a good example of that, where he had two trilogies, uh, yes. each of uh, fairly chunky books. But, you know, I'm a big fan of those. They were marvellous. So I must admit, I do like those. I I. Yeah, I'm not condemning absolutely everything, but I have read plenty of other fantasy books that I think the thing about the Covenant books is things actually happen in them. If it's gonna be if it's a good book and it stands being that thickness, then fine. But if it's just been like strung out and padded out and you kind of feel like does this really need to be this big? It's it's like factory farmed meat that's been pumped full of growth hormones and water to make it look more succulent. Mm. Except 
instead of growth hormones and water, you tend to have adjectives and <laughs> descriptions of foliage. Well, uh, Lovecraft managed to put plenty of adjectives into his, uh, his quite into 30 pages. Yes. But not much on blades of grass. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the, I said the big one for me there is, I like my fiction short. I don't like to have to wait lift to be able to pick the books up. I don't like to spend the large portion of my life reading them. I like something nice, short, tight, compact and powerful so paul what's your third one i'm not sure i've put them in order because i think maybe my my feeling is the strongest about the the comic book adaptations for films but my third one is going to be books but gaming books you don't want to throw all of them out no not all of them <laughs> just all the ones that aren't call of cthulhu <laughs> not even that i'm gonna say setting books okay mm. i'm not a fan of settings not settings that you have to kind of like read several books to kind of understand and, and get into. At least with Call of Cthulhu, it's kind of set in the ostensibly real world. So I can play a modern game or even a 1920s, you know, kind of um, as, as a player and not really have to, to gen up too much. Obviously, as Keeper, that's a different thing. And I've got to kind of know about what I'm doing. But as, as a player... Whereas playing, I don't know, just off the top of my head, like Blue Planet or D&D Faroon or um, like Glorantha or something like that, I've got to, you know, there's if you sit down with a group of people that are playing that, if you're playing a character that's kind of a part of that world as a, as a player, unless you're, you've got some sort of vehicle to get into it, like, oh, you've, you've kind of stepped through a dimensional gateway and you don't know, your character doesn't know anything about this world. There's such a sort of demand to get up to speed with, with everything that's going on. You've got to read like a telephone directory. I'm not... No, I can leave that out. I, I mostly agree with you. I mean, there are some setting-heavy games I've played that I've enjoyed. And I, you mentioned Glorantha. I've, I've done a lot of Glorantha gaming over the years, and I enjoy it. But I, I appreciate the fact that what made it easier for me was the fact that I started off playing RuneQuest when there wasn't much setting background for it. So and you were in on the evolution of it. Yes, yeah. that's right. And it's accreted detail, and it didn't feel too bad keeping up with it as it went along. But, yeah, I must admit, if, I, if, if you were to present me with a game nowadays where you know, it was a couple of telephone directory size books of background information, I, I wouldn't want to get stuck into it now. Again, I can think of the large majority of games like that where they do have masses of setting I won't touch. Uh, there are some that, that if there are games that I've been playing a long, long time and it's just I've naturally learnt the setting through playing for so long, then I'm more au fait with that just because I've assimilated it and kind of, by osmosis it's just crept in. Um, but there are a couple I can think of where I do like the setting books for them. Things like Legions of Darkness for cults. I think that's an amazing book. Not so much the Metropolis source book. That's fairly wank. But Legions of Darkness is a fantastic book. There, but, are, there are cases where it does work. But again, they're not telephone directory-sized books, yeah. though. That's the key thing. They are fairly small. I think but Legions is probably only a... About 150, 200 pages, maybe. Yeah, pro I'd say 150 at max. It's mm. a fairly standard-sized book. Whereas when you've got those big honking, again, using the Bill Bryson metaphor, like you, you could build houses with them. That's the point where I go, I've got, I haven't got that kind of time in my life to be able to yeah, immerse myself. I mean, there are some of them I remember buying, like, you know, a, a long time ago. And you kind of read them through and you're like, oh, that's, that's, that's quite good. I, hold on. There's no game in this. Yes. This is all just setting. Could they not have given me, like, some scenarios and, or a campaign or something combined with this? 
Yeah, I, I remember having this experience reading uh, some game book. I can't remember which one. It was a fantasy game, and the opening chapter of it was sort of giving the prehistory of the world, and it had an extensive timeline and stuff like that, and explaining who the you know the big movers and shakers in the prehistory were and what the key events. And none of this would ever really come into a game that yeah. anyone would play. But it was sort of the assumption that, yeah, here, before you, you, you get to the stuff that you're actually going to be able to use in your game, here's 20 pages of stuff to set all this up. And why? Why, why would I want to put any of this into my head? Well, I think, you know, it's, um, particularly if it's fantasy, then it's like, oh, well, how did Tolkien do it? Oh, he evolved languages and history and ancient history of his world, which... I think worked well for Lord of the Rings, but I don't need to do that for a fantasy game. Or if I do do it, I can stick it in the background in my own head, but I don't really want to read somebody else's. You know, they're probably not talking. You mentioned any settings books, so would you include things like the Lovecraft Country books in that? I would go for books with scenarios in um, and campaigns, but I'm not too interested in just setting because a setting is part of a scenario or a campaign for me. So if it's Mm -hmm. integral to that, then great. If it's not, I don't really need it. What, what do I need it for? So something like Red and Pleasant Land, for example, where it's all integrated with, with the tools to actually create a game in that setting. Would that be more to your taste or is it even that too far? I guess if I was looking as a person to whom that setting is alien. Um, so if I was setting a game in Australia, then perhaps the Terror Australis book the supplement for that would be useful. But if, if I was kind of writing a, a scenario based there, um, but equally, you know, I could probably go on Wikipedia and look that stuff up. We're all just looking at each other now. <laughs> this, this is beginning to feel like the end of the good, the bad and the ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and on to you, Scott, for your final choice. Again, this probably isn't actually top of my list. That would be happy endings. The one I choose from a book point of view is Lovecraft pastiches. So let me define what I mean by that. There's a lot of Lovecraftian fiction that I like, an awful lot of Lovecraftian fiction I like. But the Lovecraftian fiction I like is the stuff that reads at least like Lovecraft. They're people who've sort of seized upon the ideas and themes of his stories, or perhaps certain elements and taken them off in unexpected directions. I don't think I have ever read a story where someone has tried to write like Lovecraft. And I've enjoyed it even slightly and uh, to be fair most Lovecraftian fiction isn't like that I mean you do find some I found you know the occasional story usually by amateur writers in uh, anthologies but I I think the two biggest writers who who wrote in this style were probably August Derleth and Lynn Carter and I don't think I've ever read a mythos story by either of them that I've liked and I mean, part of the reason there is that they seem to have fundamentally misunderstood what made Lovecraft work. That it was this, this personal aspect, his personal horrors, his idiosyncrasies, his, his own style of writing. And all of those elements, I think, only really come together if you are H.P. Lovecraft. Well, there's not much you can say to that, really, is there? <laughs> no, it's hard to... Kind of, yeah, I like, my, I like my modern short stories with healthy doses of racism and purple prose. Yeah, I mean, let's take the racism out of this, because that's, that's pretty low-hanging fruit. But I, I have... 
I mean, have you ever read any Lovecraftian fiction where someone has tried to write with Lovecraft's voice and you thought, oh, that's that, that's really good? To be honest, no. Um, but that's because I've not read any right. of that. That, um, that. that would limit you somewhat. Yeah, that, well, that does indeed, because <laughs> I don't have any experiences to draw upon. So I'd say everything that I've read, um, mainly thinking of Ramsey Campbell here and, yeah. and other authors that have set stories in the mythos world, have very much found their own voice. Yeah, I mean, Campbell, I'd say, is a borderline case because his very, very early stories, that first collection he wrote, uh, The Inhabitants of the Lake and Less Welcome Tenants, or mm-hmm. uh, Other Unwelcome Tenants, he has got the beginnings of his own voice in there, but there's still a lot of Lovecraftian elements. But, uh, you know, he, he outgrew that very quickly. And I, I'd say those, those, particularly if you go back to the original edition of that, those early stories of his, yeah, they, they, they do suffer a bit from that. But even then, he didn't, seemed to be directly trying to rewrite Lovecraft. There was still Campbell in there. I mean, Paul, I mean, you've, you've read some Derleth. I seem to remember you yeah, even I've tried to defend Derleth. Derleth to me. Yeah, I've read some Derleth quite a long time ago, though, but I remember quite enjoying it. But it didn't feel, you know, it, it's, it felt more of a kind of a, an adventure story rather than a Lovecraft story. But I remember quite enjoying Trail of Cthulhu and um, what's the other one? Mask of Cthulhu. Mask of Cthulhu. Yeah, I remember quite enjoying those. Okay, but then, but what about the posthumous collaborations, uh, so-called posthumous collaborations, where Derleth basically took you know, one or two lines of prose that Lovecraft may have written and then wrote stories around them, um, collected in The Watchers Out of Time and other stories? Some uh, cigarette boxes that Lovecraft put a, like a, a scribbled a note on and then threw in the bin that... No, I don't think I've read that one. No. Okay. Not yeah. Cool. I, I, I'd, I'd be interested. I mean, if, if, if you two were to read some of those stories, I'd be very interested in your opinions to see whether it is just me. But I, I'd say that book, more than anything else, is the best example of how no one except Lovecraft could be Lovecraft. I'll have to expand some of my mythos library, it seems. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to do that to you because it's a shit book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we've had this discussion about shit books, but it's still a book on a shelf, and I love I love books. So yeah. even my hardback collection of Dan Browns, I think they look rather nice on my shelf. Yes, yeah, yeah, you've got a, a selection of hardback Dan Browns and a selection of hardback Dennis Wheatleys. There is yeah. no hope for you, Matt. No hope. Oh, those Dennis Wheatleys look great. They're all uh, yeah. got faux red leather and uh, yeah, yeah, but you've gold never, gilt edges. You've never read any Wheatley. I've seen some of the film adaptations. But you've never <laughs> read any Wheatley. Not yet. You, you're never going to, are you? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 trust me, enjoy the faux red leather on them. The contents, on the other hand... <laughs> mm. <sighs> yeah, and, and the less said about Dan fucking Brown, the better... <laughs> Now, there was a book with padding, last, uh, the last symbol. My God. <laughs> well, I know none of us can um, stand up for that, but you do seem more vehement about that one, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose once I got into my rant there, then yes, yeah. years of repressed anger came pouring out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It is that time in the episode once again when we thank those kind and generous people who back us via Patreon. 
We have running costs uh, associated with this podcast in terms of uh, bandwidth costs and hosting costs and uh, equipment costs and and so on. But thank you, you know, to to everyone who gives us money because your generosity allows us to pay for all of these things. Um, and. As well as our general thanks, we have a few specific thanks to give today to uh, new backers. And to begin with, we have a big thanks going out to Kevin Moore. Yes, thank you very much, Kevin. Indeed, thank you, Kevin. And thank you very much to Paul Jones. Hey, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Paul. And another heartfelt thanks go out to a good friend of the good friends, Tom Pleasant. Hey, returning to the fold. Yes, welcome back, Tom. Yeah, welcome back, Tom. Hey, cheers. Okay, and cheers. Cheers, Tom. And now it comes to the part of the show where we say a big thanks to the $5 backers. Oh, and God. we have something special for those backers. We, we attempt to make music as a reward. You're the only one that calls it music, Paul. Well, the only yeah, one. We're attempting. We're we, attempting. We, we make noises with our mouths and then you put them into the computer and, and something comes out. We still have a few $5 backers to thank through the medium of song. Uh, we've been trying to limit this to two songs per episode because, well, for a start, it takes Paul quite a long time to mix them. But mostly, I think the cumulative impact of more than two is quite dangerous to the human nervous system. It will stimulate your pineal gland to an unhealthy level, and there will be consequences. And the first of these tracks goes out to... Andrew Jones. Yes, thank you very much, Andrew, and yes, good luck. Are you there, Andrew? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Andrew Jones! Not once for yes, twice for no. And the next one goes out to Alexis Mays. So yes, thank you very much, Alexis. Indeed, thank you, Alexis. Oh boy. Thank you. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you, Alexis Mays. 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 Thank you. So once again, we have Mike Mason with us, and we're going to be talking about comments that we've had about previous episodes. And the thread about uh, our appreciation of Lovecraft uh, did provoke quite a lively discussion, particularly on our Google Plus community. We had a number of insightful posts there, particularly from Christopher Smith Adair, uh, who in one of them said, I found the notion of pessimism as privilege quite interesting. I don't believe I'd ever considered pessimism or nihilism in these terms before. It seems perhaps counterintuitive to think of such a mindset as a luxury, but there may be something to it, at least in general, with variance for individuals. There's certainly a question of how much such a perspective is optional. And, yeah, I found this this quite interesting, um, because well, certainly when we were talking about the idea of it being a, a luxury... Yeah, I hadn't anticipated or I hadn't really brought, taken into account the fact that for a lot of us, 
you know, this pessimism seems to be a very inbuilt thing, which considering that I am a very naturally pessimistic person by nature, seems to be something of a... Something of an oversight. Well, you don't think he is pessimistic, Matt? <laughs> Scott pessimistic? Nah. Yeah, I'm not sure, but... Yeah. Realism, that's, that's yeah. a different... Yeah. Well, I think yeah. it comes down to what you think, how you view the world, doesn't it? What you think is realistic. Well, I, I suppose uh, maybe nihilism rather than pessimism. I do see the world and human existence as being fundamentally meaningless and pointless. And you're right. The world, according to Scott... Oh, Adam Alexander did tackle one of the subjects that we brought up in the episode, one of the, one of the big ones. He says, Thank you for your remarks about the poles of view on HPL's racism. I tend to view their viewpoints in equal disregard as one side wants to relegate HPL to the dustbin and the other wants to ignore valid criticism. I think we can come to a middle ground that acknowledges the problems while acknowledging HPL's significant contributions. Yeah, I think this is quite an interesting thing that it's become so difficult in, in these days of the internet to have a good spirited discussion between people with really strongly opposing views. And in this particular topic, the, you know, the opinions are so heavily polarised that it, the, the middle ground between them does tend to get excluded almost completely. It does. I think whilst I welcome discussion about it, I don't really like to see it just shut down. I mean, the other day I was on Facebook and there was, you know, appearing in my feed discussion about a right wing uh, Lovecraft group. And, you know, I, I think nothing wrong with a, a right wing or a left wing mm. discussion. But, you know, looking at this, I think it did veer towards the more white supremacist end and the racist end of things. Yeah, and this is something I've encountered as well on Reddit. Uh, in, in the Lovecraft subreddit, uh, th- this this was a few years ago, and I don't think it reflects the posters who are there now. But I did find that a lot of the people who were more active in jumping into any discussion about Lovecraft's racism and trying to shut the discussion down and to dismiss people's concerns did also coincidentally seem to be regular posters in, in subreddits like White Rights. And, yeah, I think that there is... A, a contingent of Lovecraft fans for whom Lovecraft's racism is a feature, not a bug, and that does really quite disturb me. And then we have a listener who goes by the handle of Abstract Machine who commented on the interview that we did with Sandy Peterson in episode 100. It says, uh, Sandy was very good on Lovecraft's narrative ledger domain. He's absolutely right about wrongful sex, in inverted commas being at the heart of it all. And if you recall, Sandy talked about our problems with having sex with a gorilla. Apparently that's, you know, it's just not the done thing. Yeah, well... Not in Texas, anyway. I mean, if you go back to our episode where we discussed Thundercrack, you'll find that it is the done thing. Did we really discuss that film? Yes, yes we did. Mm, Gorilla, gorilla. (laughs) He goes on to say, Lovecraft is so repressed, it's painful to read sometimes. I almost want to go back in time and drag him out of the closet. I think potentially there is an interesting discussion to be had about Lovecraft and sexuality. I I know Bobby Deary wrote a book on the subject, and um, we did have a post this morning that came in, unfortunately too late for me to get it into the script, which was building upon our discussion of Lovecraft and and talking about um, the way he treated women in his work and and in his life. But I I think this is something that we could probably have an episode on at some stage. Anyway, I've got some goofing around to do. Well, you don't want to be doing that, Paul, because I'm reading these comments from your listeners here. And there's one person, Hirokarasulu, on Reddit, who, and I'm quoting here, it says, 
tell Paul to quit goofing around and make some more of those wonderful 7th edition videos on YouTube. Well, quite right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't even know why you're bothering recording this podcast. Make some videos, Paul. Uh, obviously, uh, also goes on to say, congrats on uh, 100. May you have 100 more episodes. He's well, talking I about sh- videos, you know. Yeah, <laughs> not 100 yet. Uh, so uh, I, I shall endeavour to put out some more videos before too long. Yes, that's probably the best I can say. No, Okay, yes, we'll, we'll hold your feet to the fire over this. I'm looking forward to the one where you, you do it entirely in mime. In mime, I think I've been interested. With subtitles, or? yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, or yeah. holding up placards. It's a discussion on the other language skill in a Bob Dylan sort of uh, manner. <laughs> we do have a disturbing message from one of our listeners regarding their listening practices. This is enough to send shivers down your spine. Scott McClure. He tells us, for your information, I listen to you guys when I'm in bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> Luckily, he doesn't, st- he doesn't stop there, though. Yeah, I, I, I can see a number of scenarios here. And yeah, please, please, yeah, clarify this before my mind goes to some horrible places. Mine's already gone there. I generally fall asleep before the singing starts. And that's where you're doing it right. <laughs> you're saving your sanity. <laughs> Then when it starts, it's like hypno. Is that hypnos garg Lady Gaga? What what is this Hi- word? Hypnagogia. I'm trying to remember which way around it is, but hypnagogia is, I think, the state of mind you get into when you are waking up. Uh, that that slightly delusory, confused state of mind. It, I, I've heard it referred to in terms of um, you know when people have uh, night terrors or experience hauntings and stuff like that. When they're woken up in the middle of the night by something strange and and you know, have inexplicable experiences. It's just but, a constant state of being for me. Yeah, I was going to say about that kind of groggy state where you're not really sure what's real and what isn't, and if you're awake or asleep. Yeah, Monday to Friday, yeah. with the occasional Saturday and Sunday thrown in too. <laughs> But yes, yeah, I, I would have thought a hypnagogic state combined with our singing would be... Terrifying. I was going to say transcendental. <laughs> yeah. Enlightening. Yes. Yeah. Numinous. It's what William Blake was all about. Yeah. So we've nominated three things each that we would uh, consign to the memory hole. Out of the things that everybody else chose, is there one thing you might want to, like save i'll kick things off and i would probably rescue the, the jump scares oh, oh, so you, beat, can... you beat me to it ah good good you just so want to see can... me tortured yes. Yes. Yeah. yes we do yeah, yeah yeah jump scares have gone now matt come and watch this film with me uh, ah. <laughs> I, I suppose i'd rescue comic book films because while some of the ones we talked about i thought were particularly egregious i i, I do quite like most of the marvel ones and I mean, there have been some fun ones recently. I enjoyed Kick-Ass. Um, I enjoyed The Kingsman. There are some decent ones out there. Sin City There's... rocks. And, I mean, even Sin City, I don't particularly dislike. I just think it's a, a very strangely empty film. What would you say, Matt? You know what? I'm going to save the happy endings. If I'm going to have jump scares, <laughs> I want to see a happy fucking ending at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, happy endings have no place outside Masha. Masha. <laughs> so back, to, back to Matt pumping his tyres up again. <laughs> happy, happy endings have no place outside massage parlours, Matt. 
Well, there you go. That's where every happy ending should take place. So the ultimate <laughs> place for us really now to go to is to a movie theatre, watch a, a comic book adaptation with a happy ending and jump scares in it. Oh, fucking great. <laughs> We're all shaking our heads now. None of us want to see this. I, I hate you all. <sighs> well, that wraps it up for tonight. If you have any suggestions of your own, dear listeners, that you'd like to see consigned to the uh, Oblivion, abominations as we uh, may have referred to them then please do let us know but until then it's goodbye from me cheerio from me and farewell from me hello blasphemoustomes.com You're not supposed to be in agreement with me. <laughs> you know I'm doing this deliberately just to wind you up, Paul. <laughs> People who agree with me. <laughs> you said you want me to play devil's advocate, do you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, do hey. as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I actually quite like the Marvel films, but I'm not, not going to say that. I'm just going to leave you to hang here. <laughs> You know what I hate in podcasts? Inconsistent narration. Yeah. <laughs> What's your next one? I love it. No, I don't. I hate it as well. I'm not sure. I think it's case by case. <laughs>